Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I am going to talk about obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. I have received a number of emails from patrons asking me to talk about OCD, including patron April, patron Sam, patron John, and others. I, I have an email specifically here from patron Leah. She says, there's a lot of inf- there's a lot of misinformation about OCD out there. For example, if I tell someone I have OCD, they usually say, oh, I have OCD too, and they completely misunderstand how severe OCD can be. I have seen Facebook groups about, uh, and on these groups, they're making fun of OCD. People will post things saying that OCD is just about lining up pencils in straight lines. As a child, I was so scared of curses and black luck, or bad black luck, or bad, I don't know, a regional term there, black luck. As a child, I was so scared of curses and black luck, I would do a sign of the cross on everything. I was afraid that an object would curse me. I would pray to God all day long. I wasn't even able to go into certain shops out of fear I would be cursed. But now I know the reason why I did these rituals was out of not feeling safe in my environment. So... This episode is for those patrons because they have been asking me for a really long time to talk about this. Uh, Yeah, there is a lot of bad information in our culture about obsessive compulsive disorder. The meaning of OCD has changed from a serious mental disorder to something really quite different and less severe. Today, in popular culture, if you say, oh, I'm so OCD, it basically means you're meticulous or you're clean or you're organized or you're mildly perfectionistic or you're sort of absorbed with something. You know, It's like, oh, I'm so OCD about my, my Beatles memorabilia. You know, sort of, sort of like you're nerdy about something. You're really into something that that can be OCD, and and it's just like a just a true bastardization of the term. And and really, our culture has been bastardizing terms uh, left and right. Schizophrenia or schizophrenic in popular culture means that someone is of two minds, right? Or see, schizophrenic. When when people say, "Oh my God, I'm so schizophrenic about that," it means. On one hand, I'm like, it's like two-faced or of two minds or something, which is not what schizophrenia is in real life. Bipolar in popular culture, I've, I've seen it being used for someone who has like really mild mood swings, you know, but in reality, the person is just occasionally angry and upset, you know, it's just like, oh my God, she's so bipolar when she really is not bipolar. <laughs> she just has emotions. The, the term eating disorder sometimes get th- gets thrown around in, uh, to be applied to people with really minor eating issues. ADHD has come to mean someone who has a mild problem with paying attention to boring things. Uh, PTSD has come to mean that you were affected by something, you know, like, like something happens and, you know, someone will say, oh, my God, I have PTSD from that meeting today at work. And it's like, no, you don't. (laughs) You have a reaction, but it's not PTSD. Narcissistic personality disorder. Oh, my God, don't don't even get me started with that one. All you got to do is listen to past episodes of this podcast. Uh, You know, that narcissistic personality disorder, since Trump's been president, narcissistic person, and I guess even during Obama's presidency, Narcissistic personality disorder has been thrown around in popular culture to basically mean 
that the person diagnosing the person doesn't like the person. So if a journalist doesn't like Trump, they will say, oh, my God, Trump is so – Trump has narcissistic personality disorder. Now, having said that, you know, the term narcissism isn't a clinical term. You could say, oh, my God, that person is narcissistic. I mean, that's that's fine. There's There's no – decided criteria for that statement. But if you start quoting DSM stuff, you really ought to know what you're talking about. And as I've said before, I would say 90% of mental health professionals, maybe even more than that, don't understand what any of the personality disorders are, let alone narcissistic personality disorder. So how in the world would non-clinicians understand what a personality disorder is, let alone narcissistic personality disorder? Anyway, the term delusional has come to mean in popular culture that you you just disagree with something. You know, it's like, oh, my God, that person's so delusional when you're really just talking about someone that you just don't agree with. And the list goes on and on. You know, our, our culture loves to adopt and bastardize our mental terms. And really, when popular culture does that, it makes it much more confusing for everyone. And but most importantly, it diminishes the experience of people who actually suffer from these disorders, as patron Leah was pointing out. Um, so let me just list off some manifestations of this that I found uh, while looking on the internet. Uh, I found one article, so, someone uh, said that they are in Washington, D.C. in a metro station, and they saw a large ad for a tech company, and it said, quote, obsessive compulsive reorder. Uh, so it's sort of like a dictionary entry. So it's like obsessive compulsive reorder, noun, the need to buy expensive IP networking gear again and again. So, you know, I'm sure to you tech people out there, you understand what this is. But essentially, there's, you know, they're, they're, it's a play on words. Instead of obsessive compulsive disorder, it's obsessive compulsive reorder. And this is an advertisement. This is an ad company. This is a a uh, some uh, you know proposing an advertising campaign to a, a company who makes some sort of product, and they're like, "Yep, obs- obsessive compulsive reorder." That sounds like a good advertising campaign. There's a there's BuzzFeed articles, you know, BuzzFeed, my God, just like the the dumping ground of everything that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, if, if you want to read a BuzzFeed article about, I don't know, uh, why a movie is dumb or something, fine. But when, when BuzzFeed just has... I, I, my impression is that BuzzFeed will publish anything as long as it gets clicks, right? And, and they do not care at all if it is accurate or represents what they're talking about very well. Anyway, so as evidenced by this, BuzzFeed has two articles where they talk about OCD in this ridiculous way. One article is titled, 33 Meticulous Cleaning Tricks for the OCD Person Inside of You. So at first you're like, well, you know, maybe this isn't going to be bad. So again, the title, 33 Meticulous Cleaning Tricks for the OCD Person Inside You. Now, by the end of this talk, which I'm guessing is going to be a couple hours long, I hope you understand how abhorrent this this statement is. Uh, if you don't yet, it's fine because you probably don't really know what OCD is. But so the, the article goes on to say, uh, this seems to be the number one organization tip for OCDers. 
OCDers. Um, everything you own should have a place to be put away and should always be put back to that place after use, unquote. So basically, this is a list of tips for organization, but they are framing it as this is something OCD. It's related to, you know, that to have a place, you know, whenever I come home, I always put my keys in the same place, for example. And according to BuzzFeed, that is me expressing obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, again, for some of you, you might be like, well, isn't that expressing? Isn't that sort of obsessive compulsive? And by the time of this talk, I, I hope you will understand that it is not. I mean, I guess you could say like on a 0.1% in that direction, sort of, but that'd be like saying, um, when I get bummed out that uh, you know, you know when you're eating McDonald's fries and you love them so much, and you finish your fries and you wish you had more, and you're a little bummed out about that. You're just like, oh my god, I wish I had, you know, just a few more fries left in this in this package, and you get a little bummed out by that. We would not call that major depressive disorder, would we? I hope you understand what I'm saying. We would not call that slight little bummed outness major depressive disorder. And to do so is to diminish the experience of people who actually suffer from something really horrible, like, you know, moderate to severe major depressive disorder. This is the same thing. To say that people are, are organized, and that is OCD, is the exact same leap and exactly the same uh, abhorrent dim diminishment of the, suff the true suffering that people with OCD actually experience. Another BuzzFeed article, article here, 19 things that will drive your OCD self insane. 19 things that will drive your OCD self insane. Now, I would, I would provide quotes from this article on BuzzFeed, but I couldn't find the article text anymore because they changed the title to something else. Uh, they changed it to 18 little things that will drive you insane. So, they took the OCD out, and I'm guessing that's because there was a backlash against them. Uh, but that wasn't enough backlash to change the 13 meticulous cleaning tricks for your OCD person inside of you. That first article I re read to you, that one is still up and available for uh, viewing. There are other things in our popular culture in addition to BuzzFeed and other places like there are hashtags on Twitter and Facebook like the hashtag obsessive CrossFit disorder obsessive crossfit disorder presumably people will hashtag that when they are taking a picture of themselves for instagram where they are at you know crossfit <laughs> you know it's like they they do a selfie of themselves at crossfit and they're like hashtag obsessive crossfit disorder and again not cool not cool people uh, and there's several hashtags that involve OCD or play on words of OCD. There's even a makeup website company, you know, like there's a, a, a company that makes makeup for faces. People put makeup on their faces. And the, pro, the, the company is called Obsessive Compulsive Cosmetics. 
obsessive compulsive cosmetics. Imagine now, you know, it's one thing to have a hashtag. It's another thing to have a stupid BuzzFeed article. It's another thing, another thing to invest probably millions of dollars and consult with multiple marketing people, or at the very least sit down and talk with your investors about what you're going to name your company and to brainstorm various, you know, because you know, people brainstorm various different names and to decide obsessive compulsive cosmetics. Yeah, that's the one I'm going to go with. And I'm not going to consult with a mental health person before doing this because I don't care. And it sounds nifty to me. Uh, You know, at, at the very least, a marketing person should be like, what if there's a backlash against this name? I mean, certainly there are billions of other names we could come up with for a cosmetics company other than obsessive compulsive cosmetics. Uh, Anyway, Um, there's also been some popular movies and TVs like TV shows like as good as it gets from 1997 with Jack Nicholson. He's playing a man who has OCD. Basically the, the movie, he's an asshole. He's just a jerk to everyone. Uh, but he also, in, in addition to having OCD, he avoids touching people because he's afraid of contamination. He wears gloves. He hand washes. He brings utensils with him to restaurants. He also avoids stepping on cracks. Um, he also does the same thing every day. He likes to organize things in his house, and he locks his door several times. And th- this, and then at the end of the movie, spoiler alert. Um, he is. They basically hint that his OCD is about to be cured. His OCD starts to get better at the end of the movie, and the whole message is that it happened because he fell in love. So this man has OCD the entire movie, and has he has a therapist, but he's really contentious with this therapist, and he's not compliant with treatment. And then he falls in love with Helen Hunt, and then lo and behold, his OCD symptoms start to diminish, which is just stupid. I mean, talk about Hollywood at its best, you know. Oh, I'm falling in love. I no longer have obsessive compulsive disorder. One of the, you know, one, you know, as if a therapist is going to suggest to someone with OCD, like, well, if you fall in love, you know, that should cure your OCD. It's just so dumb. And the uh the movie basically treats ocd like it was just a plot device that symbolized him being uptight and the movie was basically a story about a man who became less and less uptight and therefore had happiness and and was spreading happiness and they just sort of tacked on ocd i think for no reason i mean they could have made as good as it gets and it still could have been an excellent movie, excellently written, excellently acted without any of the OCD in it. I mean, you, you could just have an uptight, you know, uh, crotchety, uh, older middle-aged man who needs to loosen up. And that and that would – and the movie actually would, would have worked. I mean, why did you have to make him OCD at the same time? And then why would you connect the OCD to him falling in love? Plus, this movie is like massively sexist. It just has this huge old sexist movie trope. You know, you have this asshole man who expresses all sorts of masculine ideals like aggression, not getting along with other people, not taking any shit, you know, rejecting relationships, being alone, being mean to everyone. 
And then lo and behold, Helen Hunt comes along and tries to get in and tries to take care of him. And, and she puts up with this stuff because she can see the good inside of this asshole, you know. And, and by the way, she, the actress Helen Hunt, uh, she was probably about 32 when she was filming this, this movie, while Jack Nicholson uh, was 58 or 59. So Jack Nicholson was literally almost twice Helen Hunt's age. And now I've made a whole episode of like a two, three hour episode about how age difference in relationships is massively stigmatized in our culture and should not be stigmatized. Everything's fine. A 30 year old can date a 60 year old. There's nothing wrong with that empirically. It's just a cultural taboo. At the same time, when you just see movie and movie after movie after TV show after TV show where you have a romantic couple and the man is twice the age of the woman and it's never the reverse other than um, one of my favorite movies of all time, Harold and Maude, in which the woman is probably four times the age of, of the boy. But that is a you know, rare situation. And it's basically the whole premise of the movie is just how ridiculous that, that pairing is. But, but anyway, so this movie in 97, if, if this is 20 years ago, if this movie came out today, I'm positive it would have been laughed off the screen in the media because of just how, what a sexist trope this entire thing is. It's, It's just funny how, like how far we've come, I think in some ways in our society. Okay. Another movie here. Matched. Oh, and by the way, Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson both won Oscars uh, for their roles in this movie. Um, Matchstick, Matchstick Men in 2003 with Nicolas Cage. He's a con man who has OCD. He has several OCD symptoms. This movie actually is a much more accurate representation of OCD. You, you really get – it's been a while since I've seen this movie, but you, I remember really getting a sense of – how debilitating OCD is and and how pervasive it is and and how it's really just not funny or fun or anything. I think there's a few jokes about OCD in the movie, but um, I think for the most part, it's it's treated responsibly. The TV show Monk, of course, which was a TV show throughout the aughts. Monk is a private investigator, I believe, and he has OCD. Uh, he counts a lot of things. He's also phobic about germs. Um, and basically now I know every, I know lots of people who love this TV show. They love Shalhoub. They loved the tone of it. They loved the sort of episodic, uh, nature of it. They love the fact that it, you know, it tried to represent a mental disorder, but really this show is a terrible, uh, um, sort of, um, shall we say, representation of OCD. It it turns a very serious mental condition into basically a joke. Now, some people will say, well, you know, uh, he was suffering and he would go to therapy and he would talk about he he would be suffering. But really, you know, I've I've seen a number of Monk episodes and basically the tone of of the representation of his OCD is that, oh, isn't it so funny how he hates germs so much? And Basically, I think the 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 TV show was trying to represent like a, an exaggerated version of all of us. You know, all of none of us really like germs. You know, none and very few of us are just like yay germs. And so I think it sort of gave us an excuse to laugh at ourselves in this in a certain way. Um, 
It also portrays therapy at times kind of badly and medication uh, not so well. It, it just it's like the writers they had a very simplistic sort of very layperson understanding of OCD and and they thought they were making something that was accurate when in reality they just were not. And then of course the Aviator, the movie about um, Howard. Um, oh gosh, what's his name? Hughes, Howard, Howard Hughes. And uh, it with Leonardo DiCaprio playing Howard Hughes. They, they show Howard Hughes as being perfectionistic. They show him descending into his OCD as symptoms get worse and worse and worse. Uh, that's very accurate. They, they show him eventually at the worst of his, you know, at the height of his symptoms during the span of time that the movie portrays. He ends up uh, creating a safe room for himself where he never leaves the room and no one ever comes in. And there's very strict rules about how things enter the room and he retains all of his urine and he grows his fingernails long and his hair really long. And, um, and then later he gets a little better, but then he has this compulsion to say a particular phrase over and over again. This is an extremely realistic portrayal of OCD. And, and you really get the sense from the aviator, just how horrible OCD could be, particularly when you consider that as soon as the movie ends, uh, Howard Hughes lived the next several decades of his life in a safe room at, I think like at the top of a hotel, was it in Las Vegas or New York? I can't remember, but anyway, um, so, so we'll say, uh, as good as it gets is a big thumbs down. Matchsticks Men is a kind of a, a thumbs up. Monk is mostly a thumbs down, and the Aviator is mostly a thumbs up. Okay, so what about celebrities? Now, again, I'm going to get into the nitty gritty of OCD, but I just want to go. I just want to really drive home why our society is so weird, and 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 evidence as to why our society is so weird about the label of OCD. There are many – if you type in OCD on Google, the most frequent thing that I got were articles about celebrities who were claiming that they had OCD. And that's not what they said. It was like all these celebrities have OCD, you know. But – and at first I was like, huh, that's interesting. I mean, great. I mean, that all these people, Justin Timberlake, Leonardo DiCaprio, they're coming forward. This is really great. And then when I read the articles, I was like – Wait a second. So let me let me look at this. Um, so Justin Timberlake is one of the most frequently cited person who has said that he has OCD. I'm guessing it's because he's, you know, one of the biggest celebrities of all time or of, of our time. And he's Justin Timberlake has said that he has OCD. He says that um, now I'm going to be listing a lot of uh, celebrities here. And I, I did, you know. I did as much as one can do from a desktop computer on Google, trying to find quote, quotes and data to justify these celebrities' claims that they indeed had OCD. And I, uh, the 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 summary that I'll say is that most of these most of these celebrities, I am guessing, do not actually would not actually qualify for OD, OCD if they were assessed by an actual clinician who knew what they were talking about. I, I think that they have a lot of them have mild obsessions and mild compulsions, similar to how I get bummed out when I you know, when I run out of McDonald's fries. You know, I have 
I'm mildly depressed. (laughs) I'm mildly demoralized, but I wouldn't qualify for the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. Or maybe a better example would be, you know, there are days when I am a little down. I'm a little irritable. I'm a little tired. I'm a little burnt out. I'm, I'm, you know, things that I like to do just don't really, you know, appeal to me. But the next day and for the next month, everything's fine. Therefore, I had a, you know, a brief moment of what you would call extremely mild and extremely brief uh, depression-like symptoms, but I do not qualify if assessed for the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. I surmise, based on the limited data that I could get my hands on, that a lot of these celebrities have extremely minor, within normal limits, obsessions and compulsions, but we would not qualify them for obsessive-compulsive disorder. And again, once I get into describing the disorder, you'll see how severe and how horrible it can be. But Justin Timberlake says that he uh, is overly obsessed with neatness, and he often spends hours making sure that objects are lined up perfectly. So this is one hint that maybe he does suffer from it because he says he spends hours, which is one of the things that's really different about the disorder as opposed to within normal limits behavior is that he, he's claiming he spends hours making sure that objects are lined up perfectly. Now, I don't now these are all just interview quotes and blah, blah, blah. So it's hard for me to tell. He could have been just exaggerating for the sake of, you know, trying to make a point. Um, he also says that he makes sure that the fridge is stocked with only certain foods. There's also reports of him and his girlfriend, Jessica Beale. Uh, um, uh, are they married now? I don't know. But anyway, they were, they were arguing about the contents of their fridge um, and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it, to me, other than that, spending hours making sure that objects are lined up perfectly, I, I think that uh, Justin Timberlake like, might not actually qualify for the diagnosis. He might be on the spectrum. Donald Trump, in the past, before he became president, he used to say that he also suffered from OCD because he had a fear of germs. He reported that he did not like to shake hands with people and that his uh, his phobias prevented him from touching the ground floor on elevators. So when he's on an elevator, he said he didn't like to touch the ground floor, presumably because that's the most touched button and he thought maybe there were a lot of germs on it. Uh, Again, I'm guessing that Donald Trump does not have actual OCD and that he has a mild phobia about germs. (laughs) Because people who have OCD, one, have way more uh, symptoms and way more debilitation two, uh, than, than he's putting forth. And, and two, um, you know, when you have a phobia of, uh, you know, because you can actually have just have a specific phobia of germs, uh, you won't leave the house. You know, it's, most people, I would say anecdotally, 50% or more of Americans have what I would consider to be a, an excessive phobia for of germs. Uh, I might I might qualify myself as one of those people. You know, I'm one of those people that when I leave the bathroom, I try to open it with a towel, right? And I, upon consulting experts on such things, have come to at least rationally understand that although you want to avoid being 
contaminated with flu virus or other kinds of viruses during the flu season. Um, there's there's only so much you can do. One and two, a lot of the things that we do don't actually protect us, if that makes any sense. Anyway, Leonardo DiCaprio also claims he has OCD. He says that he avoids stepping on, on cracks. And here's a quote from him. He says, I'm able to say at some point, okay, you're being ridiculous. Stop stepping on every gum stain that you see. You don't need to do that. You don't need to walk 20 feet back and put your foot on that thing. Nothing bad is going to happen, unquote. So apparently he has this uh, minor compulsion to step on gum stains on the on the um, sidewalk, which, yeah, you're, you're definitely on the spectrum. But would you actually qualify for OCD? Is it is it now? Here's another thing that I wish society would do. Instead of saying OCD, I wish they would just say, um, I have a compulsion. So if you said, I have a compulsion, that is fine. There's, that, that, statement is, is, that statement lacks criteria, and it lacks a threshold. You can say, I have a compulsion to step on uh, gum stains on the sidewalk, and I would not have a problem with that. You're not... In my view, you're not really diminishing OCD because you're not mentioning it. It'd sort of be like saying, when I run out of fries, I get a little depressed, okay? I'm not saying when I run out of fries, I get major, I have major depressive disorder, <laughs> right? It's, it's a very different thing. So I wish all these celebrities would just say, um, I don't know if I have OCD, but I think I have a minor compulsion. Megan Fox also claims that she has OCD. She says that she doesn't like germs and she doesn't like to use public toilets without covers. And she, uh, she won't use restaurant silverware when she eats out. So the first bit of like not using a public toilet, toilet without covers, I would say that, I don't know, 98% of women <laughs> don't like sitting on public toilets without covers. Um, and many men, obviously. But, uh, but the detail of not using Rest, like refusing to use silverware in a restaurant, that that is, you know, I would categorize that as excessive. Now, would she qualify for actual OCD? I'm, I doubt it, given her description. But you know, maybe. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton claims that he has OCD. He says that certain numbers represent certain people, and he can't use that number in certain circumstances. So this is an odd one. You know, this isn't a germ one. This is like number related and interesting, you know. Um, but if that's all, if that's the whole thing he has, that is not that is not uh, rise above the threshold of OCD. Jessica Alba says that she has OCD. She checks doors and appliances. She, she says she experiences intense anxiety. Okay, we're starting to get into the direction of actual OCD here. She says, it was like a panic came over me and I had to do something. And once I did, it was okay. So she's saying that unless she checks the door or unless she checks the appliance, she, she goes into a panic unless she actually does it and then she feels better. So now we're getting into more of the realm of OCD or some other kind of anxiety disorder. But again, hard to say based on the, based on the data available. Beckham, David Beckham claims he has OCD. He says that he counts things. Um, he likes to organize things in straight lines. Um, you know, you, you might want to insert your bend it like Beckham uh, joke right there because he likes to 
organize things in straight lines. Um, he also says, quote, I'll go into a hotel room and before I can relax, I have to move all the leaflets and all the books and put them in a drawer, unquote. So again, if this is all that he does, I'm I would not qualify that as OCD. I would call it as compulsive, you know, and, and, and minor obsessions, but I would not say he rises to the criteria of OCD, which I'll get into in a second. Katy Perry claims she has OCD. She says she brushes her teeth several times a day. She says, I'm so OCD that I wish the letters of OCD were in alphabetical order, unquote. So again, if that's it, that's not likely OCD level obsessions and compulsions, but hard to say. Maybe they're not including some things. Charlize Theron says she has OCD. You know, it seems like every, the 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 biggest celebrities of the world have OCD. Char, Charlize Theron says she has OCD. She she says that she needs to have things well organized, or or else she'll feel uncomfortable. She says, quote, I have OCD, which is not fun. I have to be incredibly tidy and organized or it messes with my mind. I have a problem with cabinets being messy and people just shoving things in cabinets and closing the door. I will literally lie in bed and not be able to sleep because I'm like, I think I saw something in that cabinet that just shouldn't be there, unquote. So this is heading in the direction of possible actual uh, OCD. To lie in bed and not be able to fall asleep because you need to, and then you have to actually get up out of the bed, go to the kitchen and, and organize something that's in the cabinet to make it feel right is definitely in the direction of OCD. So with Charlize Theron, I'm like, okay, you know, maybe, but again, the level of distress would really have to rise to the level of actual OCD because it's one thing to prefer order. It's a whole other thing to have your life completely ruined by the fact that you cannot do anything else until everything is orderly in a very odd way. And that's the thing I really want to get across, which I'll get into later, which is that OCD is not just a normal preference for orderliness or a normal preference for a lack of germs in your life. You know, the, there are a lot of people who are concerned about germs and, and spend a lot of time in the day trying to make sure that they don't infect themselves with some contaminant, you know, and that does not mean that you have OCD. Just, just having those concerns does not mean you have OCD. And I'll get into like what, you know, OCD, the threshold for OCD actually is and how, how strange it is. Actually, OCD is a very – one people who actually have OCD, you'd be like, oh, that is not normal. That is a very strange condition that that person has. John Green from the internet, from Vlogbrothers and Crash Course on YouTube, and he also wrote The Fault of Our Stars. Uh, he's the guy who wrote that. He claims to have OCD. He says that he randomly worries about his food being poisoned. And he can only think about that one thought for hours or even for days. And he says he spends hours thinking about poison and he, and he spends hours checking to see if his food is poisoned. So 
this is legit OCD. Okay, so you, you, you see the difference. I hope you see the difference right away between what John Green is describing and what, and what Katy Perry is describing. You know, Katy Perry is saying that she brushes her teeth four to six times a day. Four to six times. I brush my teeth four to six times a day because I actually just, I, I don't like the feeling of food in my teeth. I, I have a lot of gaps in my teeth and basically whenever I eat, I have a ton of food stuck in between my teeth, which is just gross. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's nothing grosser than, you know, like a couple hours later, like a random piece of carrot falls out, but from between your teeth, you know? So I, I like to, I like to floss when possible, or at least sort of, you know, get that stuff out of those big gaps. And then sometimes I like to uh, brush my teeth if I'm at home. So there's that, right? Which is, you could say is sort of compulsive, but then you have John Green who says that he will spend hours worrying about whether or not his food is poisoned and he will spend hours in activities checking to make sure that his food is not poisoned and trying to make sure that no one can put poison in his food. So I hope you understand that is OCD. You know, wanting your clothes to be tidy in your drawers is not necessarily OCD. Spending eight hours in your house with one thought just completely dominating your mind saying, I think someone has poisoned your food. You know, like I'm just guessing about total speculation about what John Green goes through. But like John Green cannot grow his own food, right? So he has to buy food from the store, right? Well, he so he goes to the store and he probably looks at the packaging to see what's the likelihood that someone could poison that, right? Because, you know, it happens. People have, you know, there's a big Tylenol thing in the 80s or 90s or whatever. You know, there are people who will maliciously go to grocery stores and actually poison food. It is extremely rare. I mean, we're talking like off the charts, you know, lack of probability. But, you know, it's it's possible. And so he probably goes to the grocery store and he probably looks at the packaging and he probably inspects it for its integrity and for whether or not it would be a likely source for someone to nefariously poison, then he puts it in his cart and he buys it, he brings it home. And then before he eats it, he's like, oh my God, what, what if I, you know, didn't see something or what if someone broke into my house and poisoned it? What if someone poisoned it at the manufacturing plant and they packaged it up all neat and tidy and it, but it's still poisoned. What if, but you know, this is OCD. It is not rational. It is debilitating. It is, it is dominating of your brain. It will not go away, and it's terrifying. It's not, I would like my cabinets to be orderly. <laughs> that is not OCD. Unless that, t- that thought dominates your brain for your entire waking life for a week. So just liking, so again, uh, other people, Howie Mandel. Howie Mandel, in addition to John Green, has legit OCD. He's actually perhaps the most famous legit spokesperson for OCD. He has an extreme aversion to germs, and he hand washes a lot. And for example, in his, you know, he he always has a makeup person when he goes on show, and so every every time he has makeup put on him, 
the makeup artist has to, has to buy new makeup because if if he uses used makeup, he is worried about content contamination. He also says that he shaves his head uh, mostly because it's a clean thing. And so there's, le- there's less likelihood of germs getting stuck in his hair if he doesn't have any hair. Um, you know, he fist bumps, he uses rubber gloves a lot. That's, that's why his act in the eighties, he had all those rubber gloves that he'd put on his head and blow up. Right. Well, you know, that was that whole thing. Um, he, he has legit OCD. I will say that he has mild OCD or at least you know, manageable OCD because he can exist in the world. He, his, his life is from what I understand, not greatly impacted. You know, when you look at Howard Hughes and the aviator, you see what OCD can actually do to people. It will make someone so terrified and so dysfunctional that they can't leave their house or even their room ever. They, they can't work, they can't socialize, they can't do anything. Uh, other celebrities, Lena Dunham has claimed she has OCD, but I couldn't find any data. Fiona Apple, she says, At its worst, I was compelled to leave my house at 3 o'clock in the morning and go out in the alley because I just knew that the paper towel roll I threw in the recycling bin was uncomfortable, like it was lying the wrong way, unquote. So this one, again, as with Charlize Theron, uh, or probably worse than Charlize Theron, sounds a little bit more legit. Now, again, I don't have the data for Fiona Apple, so I can't really tell. But just just imagine you're you're lying in bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you just have this intrusive thought that... That some that the paper towel roll that you threw away in the garbage that's in the alleyway now in the garbage can is not sitting right. It, and it's this uncontrollable itch. You're just like, it's out there in the garbage can and it's not sitting right. So you understand that, that is a ridiculous uh, notion, right? It's completely irrational. How in the world would, would a paper towel roll be sitting right? You know, with Charlie Theron, there's some logic to it because you, your cabinets, the more organized they are, the easier it is to use them, right? And the cleaner they're going to be and blah, blah, blah. But a paper towel roll in the garbage can, you know, that, that and, I'm, and Fiona Apple is a smart woman, you know, she knows that's ridiculous, but that, that uncontrollable urge and itch to go out into the alleyway and actually open the garbage can and find that towel roll and actually make sure that it's sitting right so that you can actually sleep at night. That's definitely in the direction of OCD. And there are many, many other celebrities that I won't mention. (laughs) And after going over this list, it's like, no wonder we have a fucked up idea of what OCD is because all these celebrities are talking about it. Like it's just no big deal. You know, none of them. I mean, most of these, you know, like Justin Timberlake and these others, I mean, maybe they are talking about it more detail, but it's definitely not in the media that all, you know, there's like many uh, articles like, you know, 10 celebrities who have OCD and the symptoms that they lay out are extremely minor. And so although, yay, it's great that we are destigmatizing mental illness by having celebrities come out and say that they suffer from mental illness at the same time. Uh, so there's that kind of benefit, but there's also this huge disbenefit to mental illness in that it makes it look like OCD is no big deal, which results in people writing 
BuzzFeed articles talking about your inner OCD. Okay, so in this episode, I'm going to set the record straight. I'm going to talk about the symptoms in great detail. I'm going to talk about how much our culture has it wrong. I'm going to talk about the treatment. I'm going to talk about obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is a whole other thing. I'll get into some history. I'll talk about the DSM. I'll talk about the causes and many other things. Let's introduce the podcast finally. <laughs> this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, even though I'm, I don't know, an hour into it already. But the rest of it is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content, the rest of the content begins. So if you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Go there, become a patron of the podcast, and you will get access to this episode along with hundreds of other patron-exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives into various topics such as OCD. And when you become a patron, you also don't have to listen to the vast majority of commercials that you're subjected to. And also remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support, including PetFinder. We just gave a $2,000 check to PetFinder as a result of patrons patronizing this podcast. So non-patrons, I'll see you later. All right. Welcome to the patron zone, people. Love you, love you, love you. All right. So let's get into basically defining and explaining what OCD is. Well, First off, I want to really emphasize that OCD is actually a variety of different conditions that's really under one umbrella that we call OCD. And to explain or to to highlight that, I want to provide some very rough categories that I can surmise from the data and from experience and from the literature uh, that sort of exemplifies that OCD is a very different disorder to different people. And and some people in the literature are saying, look, we really shouldn't be calling it OCD. We should be breaking it up into different things or have subtypes that are official in the DSM anyway. So, but these are just my categories. The first category is people who are obsessed and have compulsions regarding order. And these people have obsessions and compulsions regarding being orderly being, uh, they count a lot of things. They, they like to repeat certain things. They like things to be in, they like things to be very orderly and, and meticulous. For example, someone who might keep their house extremely clean and can't live without that. Um, like with, uh, Fiona Apple and the paper towel thing, you know, that's, that's, that's this type of person. Uh, or someone who counts. I'm sort of putting counting in that category as well. The, the second category is the is around forbidden thoughts. These people have intrusive and distressing thoughts about violence or superstition or religion or sex. For example, someone who is worried that they will go to hell if they don't pray every two minutes. So, you know, that's very different. Someone who is worried they're going to go to hell if they don't pray every two minutes, that's someone, that's quite a different thing than someone who needs to go out to the trash and uh, move a piece of trash in order for it to feel right, right? You know, it's it's a very, it would look, it, we call it both these things OCD, but they're really quite different. Another one is the cleaning type. You know, someone who is phobic about germs or contamination or cleanliness and, uh, you know, 
this would be like the um, as good as it gets Jack Nicholson character who uh, wears gloves everywhere he goes. And then the fourth type and last type is a hoarding type. These people have obsessions and compulsions that are related to hoarding. For example, someone who collects all their toenail clippings or someone who wants to retain all of their bodily fluids or, you know, the, or someone who needs to collect uh, every single stamp that's ever been made or someone who holds on to every single um, newspaper that has ever been delivered to their house. And they, they, they have stacks and stacks of old newspapers in their garage. Now, what some people, including my colleague Jennifer Sampson, would say is that this is not OCD. This is this is hoarding disorder. But really, in my mind, in a lot of people's mind, there's a ton of overlap between OCD and hoarding disorder, as there's a ton of overlap between OCD and a lot of disorders, which I'll get into in a second. So let's talk about obsessions and compulsions uh, specifically. So let's talk about obsessions first. They're really different things, but they're very much related, which is why they call it obsessive compulsive disorder. Um. Obsessions are intrusive thoughts. They are unwelcome. They are distressing. That's very important. They're, you know, they are very distressing thoughts that enter your brain and they enter with like, you know, with the John Green example, he has a, an intrusive thought that his food is poisoned and it's unwelcome. It's an unwelcome thought and it is very distressing and it consumes his mind and it, repeatedly enters his mind and it won't go away even though you know john green's a smart guy he 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 understands he knows he has ocd he knows that his his thoughts about poison are irrational and uh, you know don't matter and yet it won't go away it just it enters the brain and it won't go away despite all of his efforts to get rid of it Uh, completely divorced from his rational ability to control what's in your mind. Now, for those of you who have never had an obsession, uh, you know, fuck you for never having an obsession because I've had them before and have mild versions of them now. Um, uh, you know, you're probably going like, well, that's weird. Like how you wait. So you just have this random thought into your brain and wait, so it, it makes you feel bad. Like why would you, why wouldn't you just sort of, say go away you know because everyone's had a random thought that distressed them right like they're i don't know they they're they're you know their mother gets sick and this thought enters their brain like oh what what if my mom dies and they have a little bit of distress they're like oh no i don't want my mom to die and then, you know, they think about it a little more, maybe they talk about it, and then they move on, and then it stops popping into their head. You know, it, they just, they go on with their life. Maybe a couple months later, pops in their head again. Oh, what if my mom dies? That would be bad. Okay, so for those people who have never had an obsession, they're like, you know, that, yeah, sure, I have occasional thoughts that enter my brain, and I don't like it, but I don't get this obsession thing. Well, okay, so imagine, it's it's hard to explain to somebody who's never had an obsession, because it, it almost sounds like in, an impossibility. But for those people who have, who have had obsessions, you know what I'm talking about. The thing will enter your brain and it won't leave. It just, I, the way I think about it is that your brain, the neurons are actually firing in such a, in a mechanical way that makes it so you cannot think about anything else. 
it basically, the way that I uh, conceptualize it is that it engages your emotional centers and your, your fear centers and your brain doesn't know what to do with the thought. And it says, I need to figure out a solution to this. And I definitely don't, I definitely cannot let this thought go until I resolve this. You know, it's sort of like when you are on the African savanna during the Pleistocene and you see tiger tracks and you think, oh my God, there's a tiger somewhere around here. I, I could get killed. And your brain locks into that, right? Because there's fear and, you know, worry and, you know, doubt and uncertainty. And so your brain locks in on that. And if someone, you know, called you on your cell phone, let's just say you have cell phones in the Pleistocene, and, you know, you wouldn't answer the phone because you'd be like, I'm busy. I got other things to worry about right now. I see tiger. I see fresh tiger tracks. So you can imagine how this obsessive mechanism would be a necessary a trait for any animal given their ability to, um, that's related to their ability to survive, right? And pass on their genes. So you can imagine that our brains have a capacity for obsessive thought. But when we have problems, which I'll get into in terms of causes in a second, that can sort of uh, make this function of the brain malfunction, it can cause the brain to have an overactive mechanism of obsession. And these scary thought, you know, scary thoughts enter our brain all the time. What if I die tomorrow? What if I get a heart attack? What if my mom dies? What if my cat dies? What if I run out of money? What if I lose my job? What if uh, I get sick? What if someone cheats on me? You know, thoughts enter our brains all the time. But if someone has a, shall I call it dysfunctional or overactive obsessive mechanism in their brain, the brain, that thought will enter that loop and it will not come out. It'll just stay in that loop as if the threat was right there. You know, John Green worrying about poison in his food we've probably all had that thought or most of us, you know, had some kind of thought like, Oh, wouldn't that be bad if someone poisoned my food? Or, you know, I saw that guy kind of looking at my food funny. I wonder if he poisoned it. You know, once in a lifetime, we'll have that kind of thought and we'll go like, eh, probably not, <laughs> you know, I'm probably okay. And then you sort of reassure yourself and you move forward in life and then you eat the food and you're like, and even if it pops back in your head, I'm like, well, I didn't die. So I wasn't poisoned. And then you just move on with life. Well, for John green, that thought enters that loop in his brain and it, and the brain cannot let go of it because the in my conceptualization, the irrational inner emotional brain of John Green believes that it feels like the threat is imminent and close, even though his higher brain, his you know prefrontal cortex knows that it's not a real threat. But of course, our prefrontal cortex does not have control over the rest of our brain. Um, namely the limbic system and the amygdala and whatnot. So um, so that's how I conceptualize obsessions. I hope that makes sense. Examples that I came up with off the top of my head here are um, thoughts about the devil, a general sense of disarray and tension, preoccupation with the thought of your wife dying, as I said. Uh, there's a lot of OCD around God and religion you know, that God will harm you. And if you don't pray every couple of minutes, you'll, 
you're going to go to hell or, or God will kill you. Or if a, if a sinful thought enters your brain, then God, God knows and he's going to kill you right away or kill someone that you love or, you know, just something really horrible is going to happen to you. It's, it's a very common OCD thing. Um, uh, worry that a disease will get you. Uh, some people have obsessions that uh, around worry that they're going to swear at people. You know, they're, they're terrified that if they leave their house that they might yell obscenities at other people. Um, some people have fear that they're going to attack other people. This is actually a really common one. There's a, it's a very common OCD symptom of a obsessive thought that is, what if I get a knife and stab my spouse? What if I get a knife and stab myself? What if I'm walking across a bridge and suddenly I decide to jump? What, you know, what if I am driving my car and just suddenly get the urge to drive into oncoming traffic? What if that happens? Now, again, for most of us, we would, for people who don't have OCD, or at least that type of OCD, they'd be like, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to. (laughs) But really, how do you know? I mean, all of us have made mistakes and all of us have made impulsive decisions that we've regretted. And how do we know that we're not going to just suddenly jump off the bridge if we're walking across it? You know, we don't really know. But for most of us that, or for those that don't have that particular obsession, we just, we're just like, well, I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen. Why worry about it? For people with this particular obsession, they will think about it all the time. They'll just be like, well, but what if, you know, what if that happens? What, you know, what if that happens? And, and without treatment, the, the obsession can just kind of run amok in the brain and the person can feel like they need to keep thinking about it because they need to work it out. Of course, But of course, once they enter treatment, we try to help them to understand that there is no end to that loop. There is no way out of that thought. You just have to uh, figure out, a, there's, and I'll get into the treatment in a second, but anyway. Um, there's also a, a very interesting obsession that some people will have that they are worried that they are not their sexual orientation. There is There are a lot of straight men who are obsessed with the notion that they might be gay, or what if I suddenly become gay can become an obsession. Now, when I first heard about this obsession, I immediately thought, these guys are gay. (laughs) And they just need to realize that, you know, because what straight man walks around terrified that he's going to suddenly turn gay? (laughs) You know, that that was my first thought. But after looking into it and uh, studying this, I realized, no, there actually are some people, and I'm guessing there are gay men and gay women uh, gay people who actually probably have us have the opposite obsession. What if I am straight? What if I suddenly st- turn straight? So there is that. Now, having said that, I'm guessing that there is a sizable percentage of people who are uh, who see themselves and or are diagnosed with this type of disorder who are actually legitimately struggling with their sexuality and don't actually have OCD. So that's a weird one, but. 
Anyway. Okay, so that's obsessions. Hope you get obsessions. Now let's go into compulsions. So compulsions are compulsive behaviors. They're basically an urge to do something. It's an overwhelming itch that must be scratched. That's the best way I can describe it. You know, all of us have been, you know, like um, there are situations where you have an itch and you can't itch it, right? Like say you're posing for a picture or something, you can't move and you have an itch like on your cheek or something. And you, you know, you want to itch it and normally you would just itch it, but you can't, you're prevented from itching it. And the itch just gets bigger and more intense. And all you can do is think about itching that one thing. And, you know, people are trying to talk to you and you're just like, I just need to itch that thing on my face. Well, that's what, that's not a compulsive behavior. In that moment, you have a compulsion to itch it, but that's not a pathological compulsion. That's, you know, an everyday normal compulsion to itch or urge to itch. But imagine if it was for something that was odd and distressing and irrational, like I, I have an uncontrollable, overwhelming itch to go out into the alley and find that paper towel tube and actually make sure that it is sitting correctly. It's an overwhelming urge. So this is different from obsession, right? It's related. But for example, with the John Green obsession with being poisoned, you know, those are just thoughts in his head. Now, a compulsion side of that would be I have, let's see, I'm trying, he didn't talk about his compulsions in the article I read. So I actually watched a YouTube video where he was talking about it. But anyway, so that's what a compulsive behavior it is. It's to some extent, it's an inexplicable feeling of urgency to do something. For a lot of people, they're just like, I don't know why I have an urge to tap five times on the table every time I enter the room. I don't know why I have to click the lights on and off 10 times when I enter the room. I don't know why I can't step on a crack on the sidewalk. I don't know why I have to step on every single gum stain. I I don't know why I have, you know, one mild compulsion that I have in my life is when I scratch one hand, I have to scratch the other hand (laughs) at the same spot in the same intensity. So I scratch, you know, I scratch one thumb and I, and then I have to scratch the other thumb. And if I didn't do that, it would be okay. I wouldn't go crazy. So therefore, I don't uh, qualify for OCD in that way. Uh, but it is a mild compulsion. So that's the thing. It's like if I was a celebrity, I would say, uh, yes, journalist, I have a mild compulsion around scratch, making sure that I have balance on both sides of my body. So if I scratch one side, I have to scratch the other side sometimes. But if I don't do it, it doesn't you know, cause me to go crazy. Um, so, but, and I don't have OCD in that way. <laughs> um, so a lot of these compulsions actually stem from obsessive thoughts. So that's why OCD is in one category. In some ways in the DSM, you absolutely could actually call these two different dis- disorders. You could be like, well, you have obsessive disorder and then you have compulsive disorder. And some people have both. Um, but, you know, they're so related that they just put them together. But they're really different things. You know, some people have only obsessions and some people have only compulsions and some people have both. So uh, just sort of get it from that angle. Um, 
often it's believed that a compulsive behavior, this uncontrollable itch will somehow prevent some horrible thing from happening. You know, if you, if you ask someone, Hey, what would happen if you didn't click the light switch on and off 10 times, you know, just, let's just say you entered a room, you didn't do it. What do you think would happen? Well, what they'll often say is, I don't know what will happen, but I know something horrible will happen. So their prefrontal cortex is evaluating the situation and saying, of course, logically, nothing bad is going to happen from me uh, refraining from uh, clicking on the table five times. But every fiber of my body beside my free prefrontal cortex tells me that if I don't click the on and off button 10 times, you know, before leaving the room, I know that something horrible is going to happen. I don't know what it is, but just something terrible. Um, so, uh, uh, and I'll get into insight in a second. Okay. Um, and the last thing here that I'll say is that the, the things that really make something pathological in the obsession and compulsion realm is that they cause significant horribleness and distress in someone's life, and they take up a lot of time. People with OCD, uh, universally, in my experience, once you actually get a full description of their condition, you will realize that most of their life is spent around the symptoms of OCD. You know, it's not just their cabinets, you know, it is everything or all the time. The way John Green describes it, he's like, I will spend hours worrying about my food being poisoned. It's not a, it's not just a fleeting worry that enters my brain. It is all day long. I am that's, and that's all I can think about is what if my food is poisoned? What if my food is poisoned? What if my food is poisoned? And I can't, it's hard to think about anything else when I am suffering from OCD. So examples of, of compulsive behavior are reciting phrases, skin picking, uh, compulsive rituals, hair pulling, nail biting, hand washing, cleaning, writing down every detail of your life in a distressing manner, checking things like locks on doors, repeating things like um, turning switches on and off or clicking on a table. Um, there could be like, one specific example that uh, I know from clinical practice is checking porn sites for the perfect video and spending 10 hours a day to do so um, and doing it for months on end. You know, every day after work, he comes home and immediately goes on porn sites and is looking for a very specific kind of video. Now, for some people, they're like, well, I, you know, I kind of do that. But imagine doing that for 10 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, 30 days a month and for a couple years. And you can't do anything else. And, and you rush home and sometimes you call in sick from work because you want to do that activity. That's all you do. So you understand the difference between liking order or, you know, preferring a particular thing and having something, having that preference or that obsession completely ruin your life. 
Uh, other compulsions are, you know, keeping things all lined up. Um, or another one that I know from clinical practices, I need to have three pairs of socks in my closet along with three pairs of pants, three shirts, three pairs of shoes, and they all have to be lined up, you know, like the sort of orderly numbering of everything. Okay, so I there is a measure, there's a... a um, a, uh, a survey that you can give patients to see what kind of OCD they have. And it's, it's called the Y box. And um, uh, the longer name is the Yale Brown obsessive compulsive scale or the Y box. But anyway, so I thought I would just read uh, a bunch of these so that you could get a, an idea of the full breadth of what OCD can look like. So the first category are obsessive aggression, aggressive obsessions. Sorry. So I'm not going to read all of these in each category, but so there's a category of OCD around obsessing on aggressive things like fear of harming yourself. So people with this obsession will have a fear of eating a knife or a fork or fear of handling a sharp object, you know, for fear that they might suddenly just stab themselves. Or fear of walking next to a glass window for fear that they're just going to, like, just crash through it themselves. Um, another aggressive obsession is a fear that they might harm other people, you know, fear that you're going to poison someone, or fear that another, this is, can you imagine having this obsession, is like a, a fear of harming a baby, like you're worried that what if I get close to a baby and I, and I just strangle it to death? Um, what if, what if I get next to that cat and I just, just, and I just wring its neck and kill it. Now for some of you are like, wait a second, if you had that fear, are you a psychopath? And you might be, <laughs> but for people who have OCD and they're not psychopathic, it's just a thought that enters their brain. They don't actually want to do it. Like, so when you ask them, you know, patients will come to me and they'll be like, you know, I have this fear. I'm going to, I'm going to kill a cat. You know, I fear like the next cat I see, I'm going to kill it. And then I'll, and then we'll have a long conversation about it. I'll be like, okay, you know, describe that, that fear to me. You know, what, what does it, what does it feel like when it enters your brain, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll say, have you ever wanted actually, you know, you wanted to strangle a cat? And they'll be like, oh my God, no, I would never, that, that's my worry. I'm worried that I'm going to like, I'm going to, I'm worried that I'm going to do it. And I'm like, are you worried you're going to want to do it or are you worried you're going to do it? And they'll be like, well, I'll never want to do it, but yeah, I'm worried I'm going to do it. So that's how strange obsessions are. It's like, even though they know, I would never, and then I'll ask, have you ever strangled a cat or anyone? They're like, no, I've never strangled anything, anyone ever. And I'll be like, okay, so that's the irrationality of OCD is like, this random weird obsession fear enters your brain and there's no, and it, that's the disorder. It just enters that mechanism and can't get out. Um, fear of being obscene to people, fear of doing something embarrassing, um, fear of being responsible for something else terrible happening. So uh, like on this measure, it says fear of causing a fire or burglary because of not being careful enough and checking the house before leaving. So this is, so those are all like aggressive obsessions. Uh, the next obsession category is contamination, which I probably don't need to get into. It's pretty obvious for that one. Another one is a sexual obsession. 
So they have the items here are, I have forbidden or perverse sexual thoughts, images, or impulses, unwanted sexual thoughts about strangers, family, or friends. So for this one, it's like you're walking down the street and you see someone or you're at dinner with your friends and a a thought enters your brain about having oral sex with your, you know, friend, let's just say, or your friend's aunt or your aunt for that matter. And, you know, this random thought just sort of pops into your head. You just, it's, you know, out of your control, just sort of boom, intrusive thought, having sex with that person that I would never want to have sex with. And then the brain just does not let go of it. It just like keeps it in the brain. Now, again, the, for some of you, it might be like, oh, that person, they're just obsessed with sex. They really love sex. No, that is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who has a, a probably a normal sexuality, but because of their OCD, once a thought sort of pops into, into their head in this category, it will not go away, uh, regardless of what they do. You know, For most of us, a, th- a thought enters our brain. For people who don't have these types of obsessions, the thought enters your brain and you'd be like, um, I'm going to think about something else. I mean, I, this happens to me. I think I've talked about on the show before when I, when my head hits the pillow at night and I turn off the lights and I'm about to fall asleep, some of the darkest things that have ever entered someone's brain will just suddenly pop into my head. (laughs) Things that never pop into my head during the day. It's just something about the lights being off and my brain being tired or I don't know, but some just horrific things, like things like um, uh, the moment of my death, thinking about the fade of my consciousness and just the minute micro details of that feeling of dying and just thinking about it over and over and over again. Well, it's not an obsession because as soon as I notice it, as soon as, because usually I'm too tired to even notice that I'm obsessing on it in that moment. And pretty quickly, I, if I, if I manage to notice that that's happening, which I get better and better at with time, I will, I will instantly tell myself, stop thinking about that. It's not helpful. It's, you know, it's not worth thinking about. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to give you nightmares and it's going to be hard to fall asleep. So stop thinking about that. Sometimes I'll even laugh at myself. I'll just be like, Oh, there, there your weird brain goes again. And it works. I stop thinking about it. So that is not an obsession. Now imagine if I couldn't let go of those thoughts and it kept popping into my head. Think about how terrifying that would be, you know, just how you're, you're out of control of your brain. That's a major element of OCD. It's just like you are not in control of your own brain. Uh, the other element I should add to all this is that some people actually become psychotic, which I'll get more into in a second. But anyway, um, yeah, so imagine having like just, you know, obsessive sexual thoughts about everyone, including people that you shouldn't be having <laughs> sexual thoughts about. And, uh, or thoughts like, am I homosexual or am I heterosexual when, when you're not, uh, those are all what we, what this measure categorizes under sexual obsessions. Um, the other category is hoarding or saving obsessions, um, worries about throwing away seemingly unimportant things that you might need in the future, 
urges to pick up and collect useless things. So again, most Americans have at least somewhat of a problem with this. When it rises to the level of OCD is when it is so severe that it becomes pathological, which is really rare, actually. Another one is religious obsessions. So worries about having blasphemous thoughts, saying blasphemous things, or being punished for such things, blah, blah, blah. The next category is a need for symmetry or exactness. Exactness. So worries about papers and books being properly aligned. Worries about calculations or handwriting being perfect, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then there's what this measure calls miscellaneous obsessions. So fear of saying certain things, fear of not saying the right thing, fear of losing things, um, bothered by certain sounds, blah, blah, blah. Uh, There are a number of different miscellaneous. There are also somatic obsessions, so concerns with illness or disease. There's also cleaning, washing, compulsions, excessive, you know, washing, checking compulsions, like checking the stove or the locks or blah, blah, blah. You have uh, repeating compulsions like rereading and rewriting, uh, need to repeat routine activities like turning on and off the appliance or the, you know, or taking hours to read a few pages in a book or to write a short letter because you get caught up in a cycle of reading and and rereading. So there's all that kind of stuff. There's counting compulsions. There's ordering compulsions like straightening paper and pens on a desktop or books in a bookcase or, um, you know, taking hours to arrange things in your house, blah, blah. Now, again, there's normal level of, you know, tidiness. And then there's where it rises to the level of OCD where it is ruining your life. Like you cannot leave the house because you're worried your books are going to get out of order. You know, there's hoarding compulsions and a bunch of other miscellaneous compulsions. Um, This is one here given into the urge to touch rough surfaces like wood or hot surfaces, like a stovetop giving in to the urge to lightly touching other people, believing you need to touch an object like a telephone to prevent an illness to your family. Um, I once had a client who had suffered from uh, this compulsion of needing to touch other people. When he was in public, he just had this uncontrollable urge to touch people, which of course you could imagine was not, you know, didn't work well for him in life. But anyway, um, so now... All of these things in this uh, Yale-Brown obsessive-compulsive scale is rated on a scale from zero to four. So you rate everything. So just having, you know, say you have mild compulsion or a mild obsession, then that's one thing. But if you have severe, like uh, severe obsessive thoughts are uh, greater than eight hours a day or uh, almost constantly thinking about it. So here's here's so this here's one scale. So you got zero equals none, uh, which is you, you know uh, your obsessive thoughts never enter your brain, which would be strange. But then number one, uh, it, when if you put a one, then that's mild, which is less than one hour a day. Moderate is one to three hours a day, and severe is three to eight hours a day, and extreme is greater than eight hours a day. So imagine having an obsession with something and you thought about it more than eight hours a day every day. So that would just be awful, right? Um, Let's see if we can get to a compulsive scale here. So um, mild compulsion is 
occasional. Let's see. Let's see. Da, da, da. Um, let's see. More than I uh, won't get into that anyway. So I think you get the point about that whole thing. So uh, now in the DSM, they actually have specifiers that say you have OCD with good insight or with poor insight or with delusional beliefs. So in other words, there are some people with OCD who have good insight. So for instance, John Green and his poison obsession, he has good insight because he knows that it's an obsession. He knows it's not reasonable and he, you know, he has insight into his disorder. So he has good insight. There are people who have poor insight, people who actually don't know that their compulsion or their obsession is irrational or unreasonable, meaning that they're like, well, of course I need to wash my hands a hundred times a day because otherwise I'm going to get the flu. I'm going to get contaminated with something. Of course I'm going to wash my hands a hundred times a day. And they're like, but you never touch anything and you never leave the house. And you're like, and they're like, well, but you know, sometimes your hands get infected with things. You need to wash it. You know, so the therapist and the client, they get into an argument about the rationality of the compulsion. That's someone who has poor insight. And then at the severe end, you have someone that's delusional. So this is someone who is completely convinced that convinced that their notions are true. Like, you know, someone has a, uh, a compulsion, an obsession or a compulsion. Someone has a compulsion that, if they don't turn the light switch on and off 10 times every time they enter the room, that the world is going to blow up. And when you talk to them, you're like, you, you know, you realize that that can't possibly be true. And they're like, oh, it's true. Believe me, because God told me, or I just know it to be true. And there's, so we wouldn't say, so there's a scale from like good insight. And in the middle, you might say poor insight, like maybe sometimes they get it, but mostly they don't. And there's people who are just completely delusional about their OCD. Okay, let's talk about culture for a second. So it seems the OCD seems to be present in all cultures around the world, although it's a hard thing to measure. You'd have to go to every single culture on the world, which, of course, it would be very expensive. And also, you're talking about different language systems around the world describing different kinds of symptoms. But in general, it seems that OCD is, is, is a human condition that uh, is not um, unique to American culture. However, the specific obsessions and compulsions will manifest within a cultural uh, phenomenon. For example, in our culture, someone with o- OCD might develop they're an obsession or compulsion around Trump, for example. Um, but someone in another culture, they would not. So, um, or some cultures obsess more about cleanliness and washing your hands, whereas other cultures, they don't worry about that. So their, their obsession would be some other kind of thing. So the, the thing that your brain latches onto is culture, but the underlying condition of OCD appears to be um, somewhat universal to all, to all cultures. Another thing, actually, one of the patrons wanted me to talk about postpartum OCD. Um, and I, I, I don't know what else to say about postpartum OCD other than to say that it is a thing, like any other anxiety disorder or mood disorder. Uh, there are certain uh, disorders that seem to have an onset after giving birth, which is just a horrible thing about our biology. It's like, um, you know, you're already going through a lot 
being pregnant and then giving birth and taking care of a young infant. And then now also, you know, uh, the universe has decided to make you depressed or uh, anxious or OCD. And so uh, it's debilitating. And it's a known phenomenon. For, for some people, no OCD their entire life. They have a baby, boom, OCD. And it, it seems to be that it's related to hormones and biological changes, but also just the, the, the kinds of life circumstances and mild traumas and stresses, mild traumas, major stresses that are inherent in anybody having a baby. You're in the hospital, there's lots of situations there, and then the birth can be pretty interesting, and then you have an infant, and, and you're worried about the infant surviving, and there's just a lot of things at, at stake, and I think that that raises our stress level to the point where if you have a, a tendency for OC that, and it hasn't emerged yet, it will emerge then, you know? Also, as I was talking about earlier, there's a lot of overlap with other disorders in the DSM with OCD. Uh, hoarding disorder, body dysmorphia overlaps with OCD. Because, you know, with body dysmorphia, it's say like, well, couldn't you just say body dysmorphia is just a, a obsession with your body size, you know, or a compulsion to make your body a certain look? And you can make that argument for sure, and people have, and that's fine. I, I, I don't care, honestly. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't care what label we put to these things. The, the thing is the thing, and the name is just what we name it. Um, uh, addiction, you could say, overlaps with OCD. Tick disorders, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which I'll get into in a second. Generalized anxiety, specific phobias, separation anxiety eating disorder, disorders, trichotillomania, hair pulling, um, excoriation or skin picking, even psychotic disorders could overlap with OCD. Um, I could talk about that a lot, but that'll take a long time. Um, so the history is interesting, but in a very, so a brief history of OCD is that there are documented observations of what we would call OCD today that go way, way back. So it seems that OCD is not something that just popped up in the 20th century. It goes way back. Um, there are even pre-Freudian, you know, pre-psychological science um, efforts t in Europe to classify different OCD types in the, like in the mid-1800s. Um, so uh, it's, it's not a new... It's not, it's not new to science or medicine or anything. All right, what about its prevalence worldwide? Well, very few people actually suffer from OCD. And, and according to research, 1% of people around the world at any given time suffer from OCD. Now, percentage-wise, it's low, but when you actually add that up, that's millions of people. So 1% of 7.5 billion is um, 75 million. Do I have that right? So 75 million people around the world have, have suffered from OCD right now, and 2% of people around the world will suffer from it at some point. It usually starts before adulthood, but it, it can start in adulthood. But, it, but it's rare to have it start like after 35. You know, it's, it's, it's rare to be like a 40-year-old and suddenly develop full-blown OCD. And there's also seemingly no difference among gender. So men and women equally suffer from this one. So... 
when you look at that, so at any given time, 1% of people uh, in general suffer from OCD. And yet, seemingly every major celebrity claims to have OCD. <laughs> so what's wrong with that picture? My guess is, is that the celebrities are exaggerating or they don't understand what OCD is. Okay, what about the cause? Well, as with all these things, it's a mixture of genetics and experience. It's a, mix, it's a mixture of nurture and nature. So definitely there's a genetic disposition for OCD and your environment also seems to play a role. Um, trauma, particularly involving medical scares early in life. I have, the, the people that I've treated with OCD, uh, many of them had early life medical scares. Like, um, you know, just, just they fell terribly ill when they were five and they were in the ho- in and out of the hospital or their father became very ill and maybe even died, but was in the hospital. And because when you're young, you, uh, you know, the stress, it's hard to handle the stress of that kind of situation. And you start developing ways to cope with it. And you, you might start sort of proto obsessive compulsive behavior and coping mechanisms early in life that sort of blossom later in life. And of course, neglect can also lead to OCD. There's also an interesting way of looking at this in terms of development of children. You know, typically children engage in a significant amount of repetitive compulsive like behaviors. Uh, And, you know, if you just look at a two year old, they some many of them can seem OCD uh, if we just look at them through an adult lens. Um, research even shows that at uh, that obsessive compulsive behavior for children sort of peaks around 24 months, and it can look very much like OCD. You know, like uh, you'll see toddlers arranging things or stacking things or getting upset when things are out of place or needing to watch the same movie over and over and over again or needing a routine, um, you know, being obsessed with some kind of monster in the closet or obsessed with some book or obsessed with some uh, particular stuffed animal that they have. Um, I, <laughs> one of my nieces, she was obsessed with the, her, the stuff that would get stuck in between her toes, you know, like lint and stuff would get stuck between her toes. And, when she was about 24 months, she just obsessively would pick that out of her toes. Like every, you know, all day long she would, you know, she'd pull her foot up to her face and she'd look for lint in between her toes and she'd pick it out. So if an adult did that, right, you know, 10 times a day, someone takes their shoes off and looks for lint between their toes, then we would start thinking about OCD. But you look at a 24 month old child and you just think, well, you know, that's just, that's just kids, you know, they're weird (laughs) and they do weird things like that. So you can almost think of it uh, and the way I conceptualize it as if you have difficulties during this time of your life at the age of two years, um, you know, give or take a year, then you might actually retain obsessive compulsive mechanisms of the brain because you're, you have what we call arrested development, right? Um, and that seems to be a viable conceptualization of the genesis of it, you know? Um, throw some uh, wrinkle into someone's development at that age, and that plants the seed for later obsessive uh, compulsiveness. Okay, let's talk about treatment. 
It's very similar to treatment of PTSD. Uh, people will often say uh, the best treatment for OCD is cognitive behavioral therapy. And yes, but that's a very, that's too broad of a statement, really, because there are certain people and certain models of CBT that wouldn't, wouldn't be as effective as others. And so um, basically, you need to use and research shows this, you need to use what we generally call exposure therapy. So for example, um, uh, and it's the same, this is the same treatment for PTSD that I use. Uh, step one, uh, and I, I talk about this so often with people because so many clients suffer from PTSD or anxiety or phobia or um, separation anxiety or OCD. And I, I am telling my supervisees this exact speech every other week, I feel like. Um, and it's complicated enough that it needs to be repeated and, and it's common enough of a presenting problem that needs to be repeated. But anyway, so with OCD, you explain the treatment model to the client, depending on their age, but you explain the course because they, they need to understand it because it's not pleasant in all aspects. There are aspects of treatment for OCD that are not pleasant. And so they have to understand what they're getting into. No pain, no gain kind of a thing. So you explain the whole thing. Uh, step two is that you work on awareness of emotions, awareness of distress level, awareness of anger, sadness, relaxation, you know, full, as, as best as you can get them to be aware of their bodies. And this can take a long time. I would say the average client, this takes six months. This takes a long, long time, you know, uh, and a lot of treatment manuals, they'll, they'll be like, you know, have this worksheet and that will help them be aware of their emotions. And it's just like with the amount of pe tra trauma that people have been through and the lack of emotional uh, intelligence in our society, it, it can take some people months and months. I, I, there are some clients where I have to work with them for years before they become adequately aware of their emotions. So, so awareness of emotions, step two. Step three is emotional regulation, the ability to regulate your emotions. Of course, that is not always possible, but, but with certain techniques, absolutely um, uh, achievable to some degree. And again, this one can take months. It can take months for someone to adequately demonstrate to me that they have a automatic response to distress that that they can actually reduce it. And step four is the exposure part. This is when the magic actually happens. And this is when you actually expose the person to the distress and you help them to habituate to it. So for example, someone that needs to um, turn the light switch on and off every single time they enter the room. So what we would do is after I explain it to them and they understand and they buy in and I, uh, and, and I help them and they become very aware of the distress level, they can rate it on a scale from one to 10 very quickly. And they have demonstrated they can reduce their distress level through various techniques like relaxation, going to a happy place, deep breathing, getting grounded, all that kind of stuff. Then I enter exposure and I say, okay, I want you to leave the room and come back in and not touch my light switch. And they're like, oh my God, are you kidding me? That's going to be horrible for me. I, I, I'll come unglued. And I'll be like, well, remember, one, 
you're aware of your distress level, and two, you know how to reduce it. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. So they leave the room. They come back in. They, you know, they don't touch the light switch. They sit down in my chair, and I ask them, how did that feel? And they're like, terrible. I'm terrified right now. And I go, okay, on a scale from 1 to 10, what's your distress level? And they'll say, uh, it's a 7. And I say, okay, employ your, um, you know, employ your emotional regulation skills that we've been working on for the past year. And they go, okay, they ground themselves, they relax their muscles, they deep breathe, they, you know, whatever it is that they have found success over the past year to help reduce their stress. And then I say, okay, after a couple minutes, I say, and what's your number right now? And they say, it's a five. They say, okay, doing good. You know, keep at it. Um, Keep doing your, your, distress management skills. And they're like, okay, thank you. And, you know, I'm there helping them. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a supportive person. Uh, We've developed a good relationship and they trust me and I, I, I'm empathizing with them. I'm with them, you know, I'm I'm side by side through their suffering. And then over time, uh, they're like, I asked them, what's your distress level now? And they're like, oh, it's back kind of back up to a six because I'm, 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 I'm really want to go back to that light switch and turn it on and off 10 times. I'm like, okay, so, you know, do your relaxation. Let's, you know, deep breaths. Everything's fine. And then, okay, what's your number now? Okay, it's a three. Okay, well, looking good. And then how you feeling? You know, let's maybe let's just talk about the weather. Okay, talk about the weather. How you feeling now? Uh, about a two. Okay, great job. Great job. Let's do it again. Leave the room, come back in, you know, and you just... You do that over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And what happens is the brain habituates. The brain, not the frontal cortex, the inner brain, the limbic system, the amygdala, all the things that are involved in OCD, you know, looping, becomes habituated to the situation such that they don't care anymore. So by the thousandth time of entering my office and doing this process, you know, they leave the office, they come back in and they sit down in my, in my chair, they don't touch the light switch. And I say, what's your distress level now? And they're like, that's a one. Now, how did we get there? We got there by having them buy in, having them understand their distress level, having them know and have effective ways of reducing their their distress level and then exposing them to the stimuli and then enacting those emotional regulation skills such that their brain learns through experience that when they do not touch the light switch, life is okay. And the only way the inner brain can actually learn that is through exposure. It's the same for PTSD, which I've talked about in other episodes. So when someone says CBT is the best treatment for OCD, if they don't mention exposure, then they don't know what they're talking about. Certainly, cognitive therapy is a good start to OCD. You know, talking with someone about um, the rationality and the evidence to bake, you know, that it fuels their obsessions and compulsions. You know, you talk with someone about the light switch. You're like, you know, well, what do you think is going to happen if, if you, so this is, you know, not exposure therapy. So what do you think is going to happen if you, 
don't touch the light switch. They'll be like, well, I, you know, I'm pretty sure something really horrible is going to happen. And you're like, well, what, you know, what horrible thing? And they're like, I don't know, uh, just something horrible. And you're like, well, if you can't identify what it is, then I'm skeptical that anything horrible is going to happen. It, it sounds like just a feeling you have, but not an actual evaluation of fact. And they're like, huh, I guess that's true. I guess, I guess it is just a feeling and not really a rational evaluation of, of the circumstances. Huh. You know, so their rational mind is pushing back on their feelings, but, and that can work. And certainly I'm sure there are many people who have been cured of their OCD through that cognitive therapy process. But for most people who have particularly moderate to severe OCD, that is not enough. (laughs) You know, just, just talking it away is not enough. I imagine for mild OCD, it probably would help. Okay, so that's, you know, exposure therapy. There's also medication, which is typically SSRIs or SSNRIs, um, like antidepressants like Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil and Celexa, Lexapro, effects or those kinds of things. Another thing that can help, it's not a cure the way that meds and exposure can be, but couple and family therapy uh, is often very much needed. People live in a system, and people who suffer from OCD often are in a, in a family system, in a community, and those people need to come in, uh, partially because they need to be educated on OCD because they might not understand it, and they might aggravate the OCD if they, if they don't understand it. Um, they might need help coping. They could be um, recruited to help. Uh, they could be triggers for the OCD and they need to understand how to not be those triggers. Um, All those things need to be taken into account. As with any disorder or any stress that anyone's going through, couple and family therapy needs to be uh, considered. You know, just treating the one individual in the system sometimes doesn't work. Also, another massive thing to consider is that a lot of children, teens, and young adults have OCD. And children, teens, and young adults typically do not want to go to therapy. One. Two, they present symptoms of OCD in an odd way. I've had teens and young adults with OCD who it took me months to figure out that they had OCD because they, you know, they don't come to me and say, I have obsessions and compulsions. What, what happens is the parents drag him to therapy because they are upset at him because he won't go to school and he won't wash himself and he won't leave his room or he won't stop camping in the woods and cooking his own food or he won't stop hoarding all of these, you know, plates in his room or something. You know, it, 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 the, the children, teens and young adults almost never volunteer for therapy because they're not mature enough yet. Uh, it's the parents that will drag him into therapy. And so in these situations, the family it, is already involved and, and needs to be helped uh, uh, for a number of reasons, most of which is that the, the person suffering from OCD doesn't want any therapy. And so therefore, you kind of have to help the family because you know, the parents might be willing to come to therapy. And so I'll coach the parents on how to help the kid anyway. Um, and another, uh, other forms of treatment, uh, when it's very severe, I would, I would say these are extremely rare treatments for OCD is electroconvulsive therapy or ECT, you know, when you electrocute the brain or even surgery of the brain. Um, these are, I've never known someone who had ECT or surgery for OCD. I, 
but I imagine that if something was extremely treatment resistant and extremely severe in terms of symptoms that, you know, ECT would be considered for sure and maybe surgery. Okay, what about the effectiveness of the various treatments? Well, it's hard to lock this down because you have different severities, different types of OCD. But in general, about half of people who enter treatment experience symptom reduction. And about 10% of people have complete remission of OCD. So basically what this says is that, you know, when people enter treatment, probably the most they can expect is a reduction in symptoms and a, and a better life. But the OCD will always be there. And I would, that's my uh, experience is, you know, once you have OCD, you kind of always have it. But through exposure therapy, through cognitive therapy, through education, through stress management, through emotional regulation, you can definitely keep it at bay and maybe even have complete symptom reduction uh, and, and elimination. And maybe you do well for five years, it crops back up, you enter therapy again, it goes back down. You know, it, It's one of those things that uh, seems to stick with you, or at least the tendency to, to stick with you. Now, treatment... Uh, Treatment effectiveness studies will find that something like 40% of people are treatment resistant, meaning that, and these are rough numbers because it's hard to measure these things, but, you know, something like a third to 40% of people, they, they don't get any better, no symptom reduction from any treatment. And I don't know the specifics on this, but I would speculate that those 40% of people who are completely treatment resistant are people who have a severe case of OCD, perhaps even like psychotic related OCD. Um, also, I imagine that some of these people might also be extremely distrustful of mental health, like their obsession might involve mental health, you know, like they're really worried that, I don't know, that they're going to get poisoned and they're worried and they don't take medication because they're worried that their medication is going to be poisoned or something like this. But as a speculation, also, I also wonder if the treatment resistant people have other disorders that are complicating it, like severe PTSD or severe personality disorders. I can absolutely imagine those things interfering with treatment. The, the reason why I'm trying to speculate as to why something would be treatment resistant is because in my experience, OCD as, as with, uh, related anxiety disorders and phobias are, in in my experience, pretty easily treated. So for for someone to have OCD that is completely resistant to treatment, I just have to figure there must be some other factor at play. Um, because habituation is a magical thing. It really does work. Uh, anything that you're afraid of, and I, I talk about this with students, you know, I'm just like, okay, who's afraid of spiders? You know, who's afraid of heights? Who's afraid of needles? And then I say, if you do my, uh, you know, treatment plan here, and you can even do it to yourself, you will have zero fear of those things. But you have to go, you have to go through the treatment, and, and which means you have to expose yourself to the stimuli while reducing your distress level. So no pain, no gain. And, and most people don't want to do that. You know, you take someone who has a terrible fear of spiders and you say, I can cure you of your of your fear of spiders. And like, oh, that sounds great. And you say, but it will involve you actually being exposed to actual spiders <laughs> or at least images of spiders. And they're just like, oh my God, no. And they're like, and you're like, okay. Um, 
you know, when I talk to clients, I try to, I try to tell them, look, we're going to go very slow. We won't do anything that you're not ready for. And if this takes 10 years, then that's what it takes. But we're going to go at your pace. And I've found a pretty good rate of success in convincing people to go through it. Um, because it's, you know, people who are suffering from OCD and PTSD and other kinds of things like this, you know, they don't want to suffer from it. It's horrible. It's a horrible thing that people have. And that's why when these celebrities are talking about having OCD, I just really question it because it's like, why aren't you in therapy if it's that horrible, you know? Um, anyway, um, and maybe they are in therapy. I don't know. It's all speculation. Okay. Just some other details here. Um, the average onset is between the ages of, oh no, sorry, sorry. The the average um, time to get treatment from onset is is about fifteen years. So when they study um, people who have OCD and how long it takes them to get treatment from the time of onset, so say you know age fifteen, age twenty, the average time it takes someone to actually begin treatment is fifteen years. So you have an onset at the age of 20, and on average, you will start therapy at the age of 35. So on average, people are suffering with untreated OCD for 15 years. That means that some people are suffering for 30 years, you know, because there's just an average of 15 years. Anyway, also another detail here is, in my experience, most counselors don't know how to treat OCD or even how to recognize it for that matter, particularly in children and teens and young adults. OCD, as I said, looks different in young people, and that's usually when it starts. And it's a hard thing to detect. And and in general, I would say that a lot of people don't know how to see anxiety disorders and phobias and stuff in, in young people. Anyway, so let's end with a short talk about obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. Um, it, in a nutshell, I will say that Personality disorders are, you know, contentious because, especially when you consider the history of, of our field, there's, there's been a lot of changes over time, and some people f- will even say that personality disorders aren't really even a thing, and so, you know, there's just a lot of debate. Whereas when it comes to OCD, there's not a lot of debate. Um, the, I, I don't know anyone who will say, like, OCD isn't a thing, aside from... Uh, Tom Cruise. But, you know, uh, when it comes to personality disorders, there are people in, in our field that will be like, personality disorders, they're not a thing. But anyway, um, but they are a thing, in my, in my opinion. So, um, in general, what people seem to uh, say about, obsess- about obs- obsessive compulsive personality disorder is that it is egocentric. So, for most people who have OCD, not OCPD, so they have obsessive-compulsive disorder, not obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. So for most people who have OCD, they will say, there's something wrong with me. And, you know, like Howie Mandel will say, there's something wrong with me. I have a thing about germs. So that's what we call egodystonic, meaning that it is considered separate from yourself, you consider the OCD to be outside of yourself. It's in, you know, the OCD is in, is imposing itself on your life. Whereas people who have obsessive compulsive personality disorder, we consider this to be egosyntonic in that they 
believe they are normal. So outsiders will look at them and say, something's different about this person. But the person with the personality disorder will say, no, I don't. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm normal. Everyone else is weird. And so we would say this person doesn't have any insight. They might even be insulted by the notion that they have a personality disorder. So that's a difference between OCD and OCPD. Another difference is that OCPD, the personality disorder, is more diffuse and I might say more mild. Um, You know, I hope you understand that OCD can be extremely intense. Thinking about your food being poisoned for eight hours a day, that's intense, right? Well, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, it's more like it just makes, it just sort of makes you a particular kind of person. It doesn't make you obsessed with that kind of, like obsessive compulsive personality disorder, they would never have that kind of hours long obsession. But what they do have is a preoccupation with details, rules, lists, and schedules. So we would say they're, they're, you know, they're, oh, they have obsessions around order, you know, somewhat like a, a personality trait that you might see in other people, even yourself is in, that's in this category is when, when you go off schedule, someone just completely becomes unglued, you know, like you're going on vacation to Europe and they have laid out exactly what you're going to do every minute of every day. And whenever you go on vacation, everything gets out of whack and you can never predict everything. And so, you know, you got to go off script. But this person will just lose their mind at the expense of having fun. You know, most people, you know, they're, they're like, I'm a list maker and I like to make schedules and stuff. And so I certainly am in that direction. But I don't have this problem. And so when the schedule isn't working, I will very quickly discard it because I'm like, well, I don't want to drive me and my family down the tubes just because I want to stick to the schedule. I need to be flexible here. Well, someone with OCPD will not be flexible. They'll, they'll, they'll think that the schedule is the most important thing. Other qualities is uh, perfectionism. Sometimes they're very excessively devoted to their work or their craft. They're um, often very inflexible about morality or ethics or justice. You know, people in this, with this personality disorder will say, you know what, there's a right and there's a wrong. And, And they're just very convinced of this very black and white thinking of just like, there's a right and there's a wrong. And even though you're trying to talk with them and you're just like, well, sometimes there's a gray, you know, but they just cannot accept that because they need things to be orderly, even around, even around morals. Um, sometimes they can't let go of sentimental things to sort of hoard their, you know, things from their childhood. Uh, they, they often can't delegate unless they get someone to do exactly what they say, you know, so they are in charge of a department and they can't do everything. They have to delegate some jobs, but they refuse to delegate because, they worry that the people that they delegate to won't do it exactly the way they want it to be done. Not to say that they won't do it okay, that, you know, that they won't succeed in the task, but the, this boss, the obsessive compulsive personality disorder boss, not only needs it to be done well, but they need it to be done exactly the way that they would have done it. And so they just, they just won't even delegate. 
Uh, people with OCPD can be very miserly. They can be stubborn. And, and the key here is that all of these things are pervasive in their personality and cause significant problems in their life. So the reason why I'm saying that is because we all know people who are anal about schedules or who hold on to sentimental things or who are stubborn. But obsessive compulsive personality disorder is a is the most extreme example you've ever met in that category. It's the same as, you know, narcissistic personality disorder. Most people do not know narcissistic personality disorder because they they've never seen how far it can go. And it's the same with obsessive compulsive personality disorder. It's like, yeah, we all know some people who are sort of rigid and stubborn, but people with this, it is like off the charts. It is like just awful. And they have a hard time with relationships and people who get close to them will immediately start picking up on this, on this stuff. So if your spouse or your brother is just kind of mildly perfectionistic or, you know, sort of miserly, you know, they're on the spectrum, just like someone who's mildly narcissistic is on the spectrum of narcissistic personality disorder. They, they probably don't actually qualify for the disorder because it's, it's under control. It's just a mild annoyance, annoyance to the people around them, and it's not completely ruining their life. Uh, the cause for obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, hard to lock down, but in my estimation, as with all personality disorders, it's a result of really ongoing trouble early in life that results in a coping personality mechanism uh, along these lines. So if someone was abused by a parent and the child learned that a way of coping was to be very black and white and be very uh, rigid and to to follow a, a script and a schedule very closely, and that way they would avoid being abused. Uh, and and it wasn't just mild abuse. It was like ongoing, pervasive throughout their childhood. And, it's, and it really locked in that pattern of personality throughout their life. Um, okay, so just a little history on OCPD is that Freud in 1908 actually was uh, perhaps the person who got us started with talking about it. And he called it an an. an Anencastic, anencastic personality disorder or anal retentiveness, you know, it, it fit within his psychosexual development phase. phase. He, he found it to be of the anal phase. It's, you know, being anal retentive is another term for obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Um, and then from that point forward, you know, it changed through history and the literature and through each DSM. Um, also, the last thing here is obsessive compulsive personality disorder is uh, sometimes not discernible from mild autism. So, so that's that's what I mean. It's like if 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 any of you have met someone with mild autism, you know that um, these kinds of things are not functional in life. You know, they really cause a lot of distress for them and and them and people around them. And so, um, OCPD. In some ways, you could say another word for it is mild autism um, and would be hard to determine if which one it was. Um, anyway, 
So that is my deep dive on obsessive compulsive disorder and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So patron April, patron Sam, patron John, patron Leah, and everyone else who emailed, I hope this satisfies you. Let me know what you think about it. Some of you emailed me months ago to to talk about it. Um, But as promised in a previous episode, I'm going to be doing more deep dives this month. And this is the first one. Um, If you haven't already gone to the Facebook fan group and joined it, uh, it's a fun place to be for fans. You, we, I just posted a bunch of pictures from the live show that we had recently. Um, fun pictures of us doing funny things. <laughs> fun memories for everyone involved. Um, and also, as I've we've talked about before, planning on having a, a 10-year live show in August of 2018. So, I'm not sure when that will be. And Lita, I was just talking with her today, has agreed to fly up from Austin, Texas and join us because she was there at the beginning. And so I wanted her to be there. So she's going to fly up from Texas and be a part of the festivities. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me on this massive OCD journey. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Thank you.